0: If all others accepted the lie which the party imposed, if all records told the same tale, then the lie passed into history and became truth. Who controls the past, ran the party slogan, controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past. <laughs> Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book rewritten. Every picture has been reprinted. Every statue and street building has been removed. Every date has been altered. And the process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. Don't you see that the whole aim of Newspeak is to narrow the range of thought? In the end, we shall make thought crime literally impossible because there will be no words in which to express it. Freedom is the freedom to say that two plus two make four. If that is granted, all else follows. George Orwell, 1984 In his landmark dystopian novel, 1984, George Orwell emphasizes the role of language and definition as instruments of a totalitarian regime. For this episode, we're taking a break from our narration of the history of fascism to have a look at the definition of totalitarianism, thanks to the work of Jackson van Uden. Jackson is an historian, author and podcaster. He hosts the History with Jackson YouTube channel and podcast where he speaks about history from across the ages and interviews historians about their research. As an author, he has written several articles on a variety of different topics and also has recently published a book entitled The Crystallization of Totalitarianism. And so Jackson has very kindly accepted to come and talk to us about his work. Jackson, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
1: And thank you very much for having me, Mike. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate someone taking the time to speak to me about my book. So thank you very much.
0: No, it's been a pleasure. And I must thank you as well also for making me feel all clever and academic because I hadn't read any sort of research papers in quite a while. So I, I quite enjoyed that. So uh, we will be plugging the book at the end. But uh, from the start, I will say if you do want to feel clever and read some interesting documents about what we're going to talk about, definitely check out Jackson's book. So To start off, your book is about an important conference that was held in 1953 about defining the concept of totalitarianism. So, Jackson, first of all, can you give us a little bit of context about that conference?
1: Of course. Thank you. So this conference in 1953 was a conference, a meeting of minds to talk about uh, totalitarianism. You know, we've just come out of this golden age for want of a better term, of totalitarianism after the fall of Hitler's Germany, Stalin's USSR. But at the same time, we've also got the rise of China and Kim Il-sung's North Korea. So it's at this meeting point in the 20th century where totalitarianism has been a massive thing, but it's also about to be a massive thing. The conference also follows the earlier 1940 symposium on totalitarianism, which was kind of very brief, rudimentary look at what totalitarianism was based on Germany but it was a very very important conference and interestingly as well it happened the day after Stalin's death which is always a fact that I quite quite like and I can imagine these academics kind of frantically changing papers (laughs) just to go oh he's, he's dead now what do I say
0: Okay, so the conference was, as we said, 1953, the day after Stalin's death, and the main objective was to define the concept. Now, speaking about definitions, one of the first things that sort of caught my eye as I was reading your book was you mentioned in the prologue that you approached the idea through George Orwell's 1984 and I must say I share that the love for that book because it's one of my top 10 definitely it's really defined the way I've looked at at some of the history unfolding under our eyes here in Italy in the United States also in Britain etc and in that book defining is very very important indeed as a linguist I love the whole idea of you know new speak and how if you take away the ability to define things you take away the concepts as well so obviously this this seems maybe like a bit of a trivial question but why Jackson is it so important to give a definition to something like totalitarianism
1: yeah, so first of all uh, 1984 is incredibly important book it does kind of it is a defining book in my life and I do I do collect the book as well different covers um, so for me it is my opinion that it's important to give a definition to this this term to give parameters to what totalitarianism is, because without having those parameters, without having that definition, you can't firmly say whether something is, you know, you can say, oh, it's, a totali- uh, it's totalitarian when it's actually just a dictatorship. There's just a strong single leader or it's totalitarian. Well, actually, it's authoritarianism. You know, people still have an element of choice, still have an element of freedom. And likewise, you can have an authoritarian dictatorship. So I think these parameters, this definition, is is very important to have to prevent those kind of ideas being incorrectly put on someone else or incorrectly put on a different regime. And there's also, there's difference, like I've just mentioned briefly, there's difference in the level of totality, really. Totalitarianism really covers every facet of life it controls every facet of life the regime structures you know it is really you know there's a reason why the word total is in the word it is total control meanwhile authoritarianism and dictatorships don't have that element of control and i thought it was important to put this book out to kind of say that there are parameters
0: Okay. And again, on the concept of definition, you mention uh, at the start of your book that uh, the, uh, one of the first mentions of the word is, is actually in Italy, in Italian. So totalitarismo, first mentioned by an Italian journalist, Giovanni Amendola, at the beginning of the, the fascist experience, and then later it was better defined by Don Luigi Sturzo, who was an Italian politician, uh, a, a clergyman as well, who who gave the parameters of, of what fascism was, and so it, it starts in Italy to define fascism, but then the conference very much focuses on Hitler's Germany, on the Soviet Union, and, and then goes on to sort of, and you yourself, Jackson, you mention also uh, Kim Il-sung's um, North Korea and uh, China. So why the shift away from Italy? So what, why, why did we get lost in it? Or, or perhaps, uh, luckily, we didn't do a good enough job at being a totalitarian <laughs> state. Hopefully that could, that could be it. We're, not, we're just no good at being uh, a totalitarian state. So why why the shift away from from Italy?
1: So in terms of the the conference, I definitely felt that it was a shift away. Firstly, because of the personnel at the conference, the academics at the conference, it was popularised by uh, or populated, sorry, by German and Soviet refugees. They were escaping Hitler, they were escaping Stalin, or they had already suffered abuse at the, the hands of these two regimes. So If you have people who are political refugees from regimes such as Hitler's, Germany, and Stalin's, Russia, then their lived experiences are going to inform what they're talking about, what they're explaining, what they're examining in the different areas of totalitarianism. So firstly, I think that's why the conference looks at it in that kind of perspective. And certainly the conference has been criticised for being too German-centric. But Mussolini kind of pales in comparison to Hitler and Stalin both his total power you know he was still beholden to Victor Emmanuel III you know he he was protected from being removed from power by the king he was brought into power by the king so there's there's that element that Mussolini's beholden to someone which Hitler and Stalin weren't, you know, they were the be all and end all within their regimes. And that really does make a difference. Uh, And that certainly informed my belief as to why it's a very contentious belief, but why Mussolini's Italy was not a totalitarian regime. But, yeah, I think it, it comes down to the people at the conference. And, you know, we've just come from Hitler and with the examining of everything that has just come out of Nazi Germany. And we're also becoming more aware of what Stalin is doing in Russia. So I think in terms of the relevancy to people at that point, Mussolini certainly pales in comparison.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, we might add, because th- this, this interview is part of the Fascism 100 series, we could add that Mussolini was first deposed by his own fascist council to, to sort of add to your consideration that the power wasn't total. When Mussolini was first deposed on the 25th of July, 1943, it was by his own council. So uh, we I can totally agree with what you're saying, Jackson, about that power not being complete because he wasn't deposed at that time by a foreign power or by a, a new Italian power, but by his own uh, council.
1: So Another thing that informs my belief on that as well is that Mussolini was also... Beholden to Hitler during the war as well. You know, there was definitely a whilst he was the elder statesman on the scene. There was definitely a power dynamic where Mussolini was not in charge of that kind of relationship. He wasn't the the more powerful out of the two. And certainly, when you look at Hitler and Stalin in foreign relations or the Devils Pact, as some have called it, there's definitely more of an equality. Between the two of them, they definitely are very weary of each other, but respectful of one another's positions. I don't, I don't think there is as much respect from Hitler to Mussolini as there was between Hitler and Stalin. There's yes, def- not yeah, not at the end, at least. Level, because although, because
0: yeah. in initially, you know, um, Hitler sort of started to model some of what he did on uh, on the fascist regime as well, and I think, as you said, that that power dynamic changed in time. And another thing interesting, I mean, Mussolini did have a bit more respect also from the international community before this power dynamic inverted. Because, for example, one thing which is not very well known is Mussolini was sought out as uh, an intermediary by the Allies before Uh, Things kicked off to try and sort of curb Hitler a a bit. So um, I I agree. Yeah, definitely. There was there was not an inequality in that dynamic that developed over time, because at the beginning, Mussolini was, as you said, the elder statesman and the model for the for Hitler's regime. Moving on then to the actual conference, one of the first speakers was Kennan. Am I pronouncing that right, Jackson? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kennen. Kennen. And um, I, it caught my attention that he briefly mentioned the idea of the feudal societies. So, so looking back, uh, would that be correct, Jackson, to look at the feudal societies as a sort of proto-totalitarianism? Or, or does it not make sense to try and apply that kind of label to a pre-industrial society?
1: So totalitarianism emerged in the 20th century, but this emergence was enabled by the rise of technology and certainly in the rise of the power of technology. Totalitarianism has been described as historically unique or novel, and you need technology to condition these monopolies of arms and communications. And certainly the level of surveillance within totalitarian regimes and even democratic regimes today is just certainly impossible for these pre-industrial political organisations and systems. So yeah. certainly you can have authoritarian governments, autocratic uh, governments, but I don't think anything comes close to totalitarianism really, because technology really enabled it. But Kenan, Kennan did see that people who were opposed to feudal systems you know, rejected that traditional model of authority, could be harnessed by totalitarian leaders to create that regime as a alternative for what they wanted, uh, an alternative to tradition.
0: So then moving on, another one of the speakers who left a lasting impression was Carl uh, Friedrich. And he, at least from what I read, stands out as being the one who defined the concept a bit more clearly with his points. Um, But I also found it very interesting that uh, Anna Arendt was there as well, and she suggested to integrate Friedrich's definitions adding, or, or points for t- totalitarianism, adding the concept of conspiracy theory, which I thought was interesting because nowadays we tend to see the conspiracy theory as an anti-establishment phenomenon. So, you know, against the deep state, uh, a ch- child molesting, laser shooting, cabals, and, and all these ridiculous things. Whereas here we're, we're talking about conspiracy theory as a tool of the establishment so, so could you elaborate on that
1: yeah so she wanted to add this conspiracy theory idea in because she believed that they spread these conspiracy theories and some of them came to power you know through these conspiracy theories and you have to remember she she was a refugee of the germans as well but for me this conspiracy theories come under the idea of the control of communications within totalitarianism and then they can spread this, diff- this information this narrative out to their citizens and perpetuate the story that they want, they can control the narrative that's what Hannah Arendt was possibly trying to get at is that they control the narrative, they control the story, like in 1984 you know, the, the young persons uh, Ogilvy is created out of nothing so um, that's the kind of thing that was is certainly within totalitarianism you know the most most clear famous example for me is that and it's, and it's apparently verified as well it's utterly bizarre is that kim jong un didn't defecate and they, they they told their citizens that the citizens believed it and it kind of increases this godlike status within these people within these societies and again creates that cult of personality and we have to remember as well that the the anti-semitic side of nazism you know that, that comes from the protocols of the elders of zion which is a conspiracy theory that yeah, the jewish race was the mother control. of
0: conspiracy theories
1: exactly which, which exactly. seems to have
0: been if correct me if i'm wrong jackson a russian origin of the russian secret police if i remember correctly
1: now, i can't remember off the top of my head unfortunately but <laughs> you know that there is also historic anti-semitism within uh, russia as well so there's there's that common thread of conspiracy theories within these regimes already. So she'd be right to mention conspiracy theories. Uh, but again, Friedrich was was right to reject it as well.
0: Okay, so he ended up rejecting it.
1: Yes, yeah, okay, yeah. Still I didn't, I didn't filled within his five categories that I put in the book.
0: Okay. Okay. Then another of the speakers, Jigglixman, he mentioned the concept of terrorization, which sort of sticks in your ear because it we're used to hearing the word terrorism. So what is the difference between terrorization and
1: terrorism? So, first, G- Jersey G. Glixman's is a very, very interesting character. I can't find much about him, but he was a political refugee from the USSR. He'd been part of slave labour, so he was very, very aware of these concepts and the effects of these concepts on people within totalitarian regimes. Now, terrorism as we all know, is the unlawful use of violence and intimidation against people, property, governments. Uh, It's done to achieve political aims or goals. So, you know, we're all aware of Al-Qaeda and other similar organisations. Now, where it does kind of become a little bit muddled is you can have state-sponsored terrorism, which is the use of, you know, violence and intimidation against people or people of other states to achieve a goal. But it usually involves violence you know there's always some kind of damage to people mentally physically or property now terrorization on the other hand is to instill or create that fear or anxiety within people so for me the perfect example of that is the the knock on the door in the middle of the night mm. the sound of the gunshot echoing through the city whilst executions taking place that fear and panic that people experience when they don't know where it's happening, don't know who's next. Now, these lists that Stalin created, sometimes there were names, sometimes they were just given numbers, and they'd had to go and execute that amount of numbers, imprison that amount of numbers, just to create that prophylactic, that paralyzing mm-hmm. sense of fear within the citizenry for compliance, compliance through fear.
0: And... Another speaker uh, mentions, it, it's uh, Gurian, is that correct again? Yeah, Gurian. Gurian. Uh, he mentions the idea of deification, so transforming the leader, the great leader, into a divinity. And I think you gave a good example before, in the fact that Kim Jong-un apparently doesn't poo, uh, which obviously is impossible, but, you know, that <laughs> is trying to give him let's say, godlike characteristics and abilities. And another thing I recently discovered, I I listened to another great podcast, which is Professor Buzzkill, and, and they mentioned how Nazism had also tried to take over Uh, religious communication for example changing the lyrics to silent night and a certain point Hitler appears in silent night uh, also attempting to to reduce let's say the Jewish aspect of of the Christian uh, religion so how does how does that factor this this deification factor into the idea of totalitarianism perhaps thinking also about you know some modern day examples of people that seem to be apparently infallible in their uh, government action. In yeah, the so eyes the of their de- supporters, obviously. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so the deification is is that cult of personality, which is crucial, I feel, to, to dictatorship and into totalitarianism. So it's that cult that surrounds a leader and develops into this mass sprawling web of information or dif- disinformation about uh, an individual leader. So, you know, like you've already mentioned with Hitler, he had had Silent Knights. Someone even tried to name a rose breed after Hitler. So it reaches um, high levels. You know, Stalin, are cities named after him in Russia. Um, yeah, he had a nickname definitely. from the people, you know, Father, Grandfather Foss. So he kind of bosters that belief that they're the provider. Um, and Mao and the Kim fan- family kind of happens the same as well. So, It's a crucial feature within totalitarianism that you have this cult surrounding a leader that adds a little bit more oomph to their image uh, to kind of get rid of that idea that they could disappear, someone could replace them. Because they are, like I said earlier, the be-all and the end-all, and that only adds to that because the people won't want to go against the person who provides for them. Modern-day examples. Xi Jinping, possibly in China. Mm-hmm. um building up his own cult of personality uh, i mean i've said enough about china already for me to kind of be okay with saying it now but uh, <laughs> apparently his phd thesis was apparently plagiarized so yeah that's starting to so he's to he stole it from someone
0: yes okay
1: yeah so that that adds to that you know he's he's the most intelligent he's building China up into this kind of powerhouse by adding to his credentials. I'm trying to stay away from the obvious, obviously. <laughs> um, and Putin. Putin has a fantastic... I think Putin's probably got the best modern cult of personality because it transcends Russia. Mm. His meme, the memes of Putin aren't... I mean, he might see them, but they're not They're not derogatory. He's, he's pictured as that Strapping man on the horse, and and people admire for him for that. He's got black belts in Taekwondo, and
0: well, so does Trump actually now. I think honorary, but uh I recently read an article where he was assigned an, or- an honorary black belt in, I think, Taekwondo. Actually, so so <laughs> he, he so he's no less than than Putin there.
1: Yeah, def- <laughs> that'd be an interesting fight. That one would. <laughs> yeah, but there's there's definitely those kind of things, and it's very interesting to see. From a modern perspective as well, how how close these these pull out. But we probably have more cult personality surrounding celebrities now. Mm-hmm. although Kim jong, Kim jong, Kim uns a new one, yeah, Kim Jong- Un's got um got quite a strong cult personality north koreans have to copy his haircuts and style uh, yeah, and yeah. so on so not they also have to
0: have a, a picture of him in their house and have to have to clean it every day and and uh, if they don't clean it properly then they, they get arrested or something
1: yes certainly yeah and you have to wear a pin on your left bra- uh, left left label uh, by law as well so it's even enshrined in law to praise and worship these people then,
0: of course, in Italy, we have our good old Silvio Berlusconi, who himself declared that he was the anointed one. So, you know, how's that for deification?
1: <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a great example, and he also used sport for it as well. So,
0: Absolutely, yeah. He built his reputation on it, sport being a good businessman and a good entrepreneur. And, and, and we, we're dealing with him again in these days, but it doesn't seem like he's going <laughs> to get what he wants this time around. So. Okay, so we, we've sort of skirted around it a bit, but at this point, uh, Jackson, what are these points to define totalitarianism?
1: So there's there's different schools of thought and ideas. So firstly, there's a school of thought that kind of says, "Who are we to deny the the lived experience of people?" You know, if someone was to come and say, "My region," or someone from Belarus, someone from China, someone was to come up to me and say. The the regime that I live under is totalitarian. Well, who am I to deny that lived experience of theirs? You know, I have no lived experience in Belarus or China. So I can't offer a a true rejection of their lived experience. Yeah, it's a good However,
0: consideration also, because then totalitarianism isn't always aimed at all of the populace, but it would be aimed by nature at certain individuals and certain groups. So that makes sense.
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, but however, like I said earlier, I think that it's important to have a definition, a parameter to actually prevent that false laving of regimes we don't like or authoritarian regimes that we don't like as totalitarian. So, for example, the past seven years, I've seen a lot of articles going, well, Trump's Trump's a totalitarian. No, he's not. He's not at all. He was elected. He didn't have that power, though. Checks and balances, He's not totalitarian. He's an authoritarian want to be. So that kind of, that's why those parameters are so important. But in terms of Friedrich, he walked away after this conference in the 1960s with a, a set of six clear ideas of what totalitarianism is. Now I'm aware that these are 60 years old, but you know they're still applicable today. So, so there's an official ideology with body of doctrine to support it. So that'd be like Mein Kampf for Nazism. And these kind of act as a rule for society. Uh, a single mass party led by one man, the dictator. So that'd be, you know, Mussolini in Italy, uh, Stalin and the Communist Party, Mao, Communist Party. Uh, a system of terror enacted through the party and the secret police, but enacted arbitrarily in a physical or psychological way. So, you know, that's the knock on the door, that's the beatings, the executions. And then there's a technologically enabled monopoly of control over communications. So they controlled the newspapers, they controlled the radios. Surveillance fell under that as well. So they had a clear idea of what story they were putting out, but what people thought, you know, like thought crimes and so on. And then there's a... So back in technologically... 1984, the, the famous thought police. Yeah? Exactly, exactly what that is. And that's, that's always the image that I have in my head when I think of that. Then there's a technologically enabled monopoly of control over all forms of armed combat, so guns and so on, so there's no chance for an uprising. If you can't get hold of weapons, or the secret police and the army have all the weapons or better weapons, you have no chance to stand up to totalitarians, and I think that's one of the most important parts for me, is that they've removed any chance of removal of themselves to perpetuate the the loop over and over again and then there's a centrally controlled and directed control of the economy so that's the five-year plans the four-year plans and so on that outline where the economy is supposed to go the industrialization of countries and you see that under china in stalin's russia the building up of finances to become these massive powerhouses and superpowers But again, there are different schools of thought from now on. Uh, Dr. Richard Shorten of the University of Birmingham speaks about ideological definitions and structural definitions. But for me, this is, you know, the the Friedrich. I I sit in the Friedrich school.
0: Great. And the last paper uh, was by a man named uh, Karl Deutsch. And he sort of leaves us, from what I gathered, from, with a little ray of hope, speaking about the uh, disaggregation of the totalitarian regime. Is that the message that he tried to convey, or am I being
1: a bit too optimistic there? No, no, no he, you're definitely right there. He definitely tried to build this picture that this is the way that totalitarian regimes disintegrate, the way that totalitarian regimes die. And that's what I try to show in my book. The birth, the life and the death of uh, totalitarianism. Deutsch is very, very accurate within his paper at the conference. And it's scarily accurate as well. It's <laughs> a very good paper. Um, but for me, I can see North Korea with possible, possible social liberalization or exposure to liberalization could could lead to its collapse. But we're never sure entirely how much exposure they can have, how much information they have, and how much exposure to liberalisation they could get. So North Korea is always a tricky one. But out of everything, I could see that one disintegrating. China has this thing called a fang Show cycle. So they, they tighten their grasp on society and then they'll let go for a time to kind of let a brief period of liberalisation. And then when it starts to get possibly a little bit too far, they tighten the grip up again. And I think they've learnt their lessons from other totalitarian regimes, like Russia, very well. And I sense China could be here for a long time because of the lessons that they learnt, not only from Russia, but from themselves. Uh, Belarus, I think it's probably way too early to tell. It's only recently been declared as totalitarian and for us to kind of make a judgment on when that's going to end. I don't want to say really, because the UN aren't really clear on what's fully happening there as well. And then Russia under Putin. Putin's putting Russia in a lot of difficult positions. He's putting the world into a lot of difficult positions, especially within Ukraine. And I genuinely could not tell you a Putin, because I think that at some point the leader gets bigger than the country. Mm -hmm. And that could have possibly happened there. And... If he was the guy, you could see a similar fallout to what happened with Russia after the death of Stalin, but okay. again, that's a difficult one to to outline
0: yeah, because there was for a time some hope after stalin uh, that that maybe there could be an opening up and that you know relations with the West could improve and that could be a moment of change so and on the other hand, um, I don't want to end on a depressing note, but on the other hand, do you see the risk? anywhere else in the world, of the emergence of a
1: totalitarian regime? I think... I'm going to take something that... I think it's Bauman. Bauman said there's a seed for a holocaust in every country. Mm -hmm. And there is certainly a seed for authoritarianism within most countries. Okay. Um, And some of them... Could possibly descend chaos, but uh, America is one worry, but I couldn't ever see it becoming totalitarian mm-hmm. simply because of its checks and balances and their okay. obsession for freedom. Uh, but one emerging area, and as I think Robert says, or Davis, is um, the Middle East, mm-hmm. certainly with ISIS. ISIS is demonstrating within its regimes because it's now government that it is totalitarian in its outlook and totalitarian in its policies. So I think the Middle East under ISIS is one of those next areas to go totalitarian.
0: Okay. Well, we hope we've piqued your curiosity. Uh, Jackson, if listeners want to get a hold of your book, where can they get it?
1: So you can find The Crystallization of Totalitarianism on Amazon. Uh, You can get paperbacks, hardbacks, and Kindle copies available across the world. Uh, It has got an anglicized spelling, so crystallization is with an S, not a Z, because that is also my preferred spelling. Okay. And then you can buy signed copies on my website, which is www.historywithjackson.co.uk.
0: Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about? You have a YouTube channel, for example. Now's the time to plug whatever you want to plug.
1: Yeah, so uh, thank you, Mike. Yeah, I have a uh, YouTube channel where I talk about different areas of history every week on a Sunday. So at the moment, going through English and British monarchs. And then I have a podcast where I speak to historians about their specialisms and their research as well. And that is also called History of Jackson. So they're available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all major podcast sites, wherever you get them from, really. So yeah, I definitely want to shout those out, and also want to shout out Mike. Really, your yeah, your fantastic podcast you do a lot of great work, Mike. Ah, thank, so thank you very, you very much. much. Cheers. Yeah,
0: but back at you, back at you, and thank you again very much, Jackson, for this interview. Really interesting, and maybe hopefully in future we'll we'll get to collaborate on other things.
1: Oh, that'd be awesome, Mike. Thank you very much.
0: Brilliant. Thanks again. I hope you found that interview interesting. If you want to look Jackson up, you can also find his info in the show notes. This episode was a part of the Fascism 100 series for the 100th anniversary of the foundation of the Italian Fascist Party. It is researched and recorded by Matteo Marconi and by me, Mike Corradi. Music is by Fabio Debbi. Look him up on his YouTube channel. Until next time, keep on resisting.